Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got John Register. John won the Paralympic silver medal just six years after having his left leg amputated. A world-class athlete who qualified for two Olympic trials and a prospect for Army Officer School, John was on a successful career path. The injury temporarily halted his career until he found his new normal. He qualified for two Paralympic Games and won Paralympic long jump silver medal in Sydney 2000, while setting the American record in the process. Furthermore to this, he founded the US Olympic Committee Paralympic Military Sports Programme, which shows wounded, ill and injured veterans how to use sport as a tool for their rehabilitation. Welcome on to the show, John. Hey, welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That's my pleasure. So obviously we delved off air a lot about a few different topics, but first of all, can we kind of delve into your story as to how you got into Paralympic sport? Yeah, I always, you know, with James, thanks for that. Uh, I always think about um, no one really seeks out to become a Paralympic athlete (laughs) because you you usually have to lose something. Uh, And I was on my way to the the Olympic Games. I was running the 110-meter high hurdles, 400-meter hurdles, and long jump. So I went to two Olympic trials in three different sports. Those were the three disciplines I competed in. And I was training for my uh, my third Olympic trials to make the U.S. team. You have to be top three in the United States to make the team. And I was sitting at, in, the, in the top eight in the United States, top 20 in the world in the 400-meter hurdles. Uh, in 1994, I went across the hurdle, and I dislocated my left knee. I severed the artery behind the kneecap, and seven days later, I became an amputee because of poor circulation and blood flow. The doctors just could not repair the artery uh, adequately enough, and so I became an amputee. And it was really at that point that I began to not think about Paralympic sports, but just this entire shift uh, inside of life itself, right? Uh, I didn't even know about the Paralympic Games at that point. And it was my wife that really gave me a baseline because I was on this downward spiral. I was asking myself the question, you know, who am I now? What's my identity? Is she going to stick around? Is my son still going to see me as his dad? Do I still have a job? And the, and the, I was in the Army at the time. Do I still have a job in the Army? Can I support my family? My living dreams are gone. All these things were in my mind. And then she said, you know what, John, we're going to get through this together. It's just our new normal. And that became the baseline to really launch into where you're going with the question and how to become a Paralympic athlete um, was I use sports as a tool for my rehabilitation. And the sports led on to me understanding that there was this world called Paralympic sport. And I decided to try to make the Paralympic swim team, swim trials, not the team. I didn't think I would ever make the team. And somehow I fluked up and actually made the Paralympic swim team and went to the 96 Paralympic Games as a swimmer instead of a 400-meter hurdler. And it was there I saw athletes in the track running with artificial limbs. uh, And I decided to say, hey, I got to have one of those neat little things. And I wound up uh, having the leg made for running and four years later won, uh, won the silver medal in the long jump in Sydney, Australia. So that's kind of the journey uh, from athletics, high-level athletics, to kind of the lowest point in my life, all the way back to uh, a medal in a totally different track, but kind of a similar track. 
I think I could probably relate to that journey. Mine's probably obviously a little bit different because I had my been my disability all my life as a con- congenital disability. Mm. But as you touched upon there, in terms of, I think it's a prerequisite we've got in our minds in terms of if it's not doesn't fit within this box, it's not termed quote unquote normal. But I think yeah. I had kind of that mindset as well. Obviously, I knew of the Paralympics. Um, I'm well. I was about say when you were competing, I'd have been in my uh, early teen, perhaps say pre-teens, teens. So I was very much not fascinated, but you did see it sort of be on with highlights of these exploits. But I was asked by my coach. I think I would have been about fifteen, sixteen. Had I ever thought about doing disability sport? And I think at the time. I was probably taken aback by the comment. It's like, no, I'm competing in able-bodied sports, able to compete with them on par within reason. It's like, I don't really have, quote-unquote, well, you could say to a lesser degree, uh, say our cat, uh, both our disabilities at the top echelon anyway. So we are, our society sees it probably the closest that you're going to get to normal. So it's, it's very much, maybe I had a prejudice towards the movement itself at that age and maybe probably an honest and reflection looking back on it now, I probably was challenged. It's probably my way of challenging authorities like, okay, I'll listen to what you have to say, but I don't agree with it. And I went home, spoke to my mother who I'm very close with and she was kind of taken aback as that was so well. Why? Why would he want to do it? In the long, in the kind of cut, in the long story short, I did have a coach there who coached in the Belgian league as well, and he knew of a disability coach who ended up being my coach at the disabled club I went to, probably about six months down the line, and it's probably the best decision somebody I won't say he's done for me, but yeah. as kind of described, well, why don't you try it? And wow. It made a, it made, gave me a career <laughs> ten years later. So it's like, well, if they hadn't have done that, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be the same individual I am today. Yeah, I, I think you know you you make a great point. One, you know, we talked a little earlier about being congenital versus being acquired, and you know, really within, inside of that comment, I, I believe that people that are born with a, a quote unquote disability really aren't disabled. Uh, because their mindset is always about adapting. It's about adaptability. I just, I just know this environment as it is. The people who become disabled then are the ones who make assumptions on what you and your, your life should be like based upon what they believe their life would be like if they were in your situation. So we forecast that as a person that doesn't have a disability. And I think we all have some type of, of disability, whether it's mental or it's um, capacity or physical. Um, so we forecast that onto somebody and we believe what they can or cannot do based upon we think we could or could not do it for if we were in that situation. But for myself, you know, I had this pathway that was, I was already on an Olympic path and uh, going through all the seminars and trainings and the high performance, those type of things uh, to, and I could see my way onto the Olympic team. With the injury, I had to retool and rethink and now become um, get into my own prejudice against people with disabilities because I have my own negative stigma 
remember my if my wife gonna stick around well why would i think she was not why would i think she's gonna leave because i'm deformed somehow now or my son was going to not see me as his dad why because i'm deformed i have this one leg the army's gonna kick me out i can't work a job because of this one leg so all these things were prejudices i had against myself and unbeknownst to me people with disabilities and i didn't even realize they were lying dormant on the inside i thought it was pretty you know good and I had to have those things revealed to me. So once my wife gave me the baseline that everything was kind of cool, now I can begin to move out into the space of adaptability. How does my environment now adapt to the same way that person who's been born congenital life adapts? And I can, I can now for, forward myself in that adaptability and say, well, I'm really not disabled. I just, I'm just now adaptable. I just adapt to, I just do things differently. And it's other people, again, that are looking at me and determining what I can or cannot do based upon what they think they could or could not do if they were in my situation are the ones who now have to switch and shift to their new normal. Does it not come back to probably an essence of society having that way of thinking and from a cognitive standpoint, if you don't fit this box and mold, obviously you're, on the, you're kind of an outsider. Yeah, I think we do it all the time, and disability is only one one way in which we we have it. I do a lot of speaking to like uh, business resource groups. Uh, these are kind of affinity groups within inside of a business. So there might be the 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 black group, the the Hispanic group, the uh, Asian group, um, the disability group. But what I find against with the disability group is that the disability group actually touches all the other ones because it doesn't discriminate right it covers the spread that anybody can have a disability and going in and talking to those groups we do have this kind of box that we put people in of what we think they can or cannot do but it really doesn't have to deal with um with what i think about disability it has to deal with my environment and how i grew up and what people told me so if i'm walking down the street or let's let's say a grocery store and i walk into a grocery store and i have my shorts showing and some little kid is at the end of the aisle pointing and saying, hey, mom, look, there's Robot Man, there's Robot Man, right? So I'm laughing, but mom looks at me and says, oh my gosh, that's horrible. I can't believe my child just said that. I need to take her or him down another aisle. What we just did, what that mother just did at that point, that father just did to that child was say that what you said is wrong and I need to move you or remove you from the situation because that is something that we don't look at when we don't call out in our society. If we would have a different experience and go to that individual and embrace them, our box gets bigger because now we have a learning environment. Uh, this really great uh, model called the Joe Harry window model. It's a human personal relationship model that was back in 19, I think, 58. And it has four quadrants. I won't go into all the quadrants. But two of the boxes are the, the known area, what I know about you right now, and the unknown area, which, which is self-discovery. What, what you don't know about me and what I don't know about you. So that's a self-discovery. And that's really the space where brilliance happens to actually open up the known area. And so that's what we're trying to get at because that box that's so small, we really want to open up as large as we can. And we find the most successful people, the most successful businesses are the ones who open up that box and understand that diversity is the, 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 um, the key ingredient to success. If you limit it, if you only look one way, you are not getting the best of society. And so you will always be behind 
uh, with, with that limited viewpoint and thinking. But also, John, wouldn't you not say by taking the kid out of that situation, you are stunting their, their growth to a certain extent because kids are always going to be inquisitive anyway. So they're going to, if you take them away from that situation, they're going to be obviously ask that same question down the line to another individual. And if you keep doing that, how are they able to probably adapt and think of that as, well, we won't say normal because it, you, yeah. don't, you don't always see disabled people in the street anyway, even if you do have that in, in impairment as well. So I think, yeah. I think they're good to, they, they won't. I think that they some of them, the amputees do use, uh, is where are these people hiding? But it's like, well, it's probably that you could term it stigmatization because of that a bad experience they've had in the past. Uh, that that has happened and they I don't know have a mental shift whereas oh I've had a bad experience somebody's had a problem with how I look you could tell me outside of the disability as well I'll, I'll cover it up so it's like well yeah you should probably look at it from the flip side of that it's not I haven't got the problem with my disability you have it's you that needs to change right yeah, I think you make a great point. I think there's there's two ways to, to, to look at that. That person that is that little child, for example, that's taken away from that this is wrong, it's coming from a person that is in authority in their life. And so they're saying that this is definitive for me. Mommy or daddy has said that this is wrong. I need to stay away from it. So it, it, it replicates itself on down the line so that when they become the parents, they do the exact same behavior with their children. So it takes somebody to break that cycle and go up and actually have the conversation. Um, and that's, that's one thing that liberates and frees not only them, but it can also liberate that person with the disability in the first place. Um, because if I'm a person with a disability and, I don't, and I'm oblivious to that, that I can have impact and change. That's why I talk about, from my standpoint, the inspirational value of disability. Um, we often as athletes don't like that term, inspiration. But it's a, it's a mantle that comes with the territory just because people will see it and say, oh, my gosh, you're so inspirational. I can't control what you believe about me, right, except through my behavior and my actions. So if I'm walking around behavior and action in shorts, somebody sees that and I'm in the grocery store and say, oh, I'm so glad you're out. You're, you're such a hero. You're such a role model. And I can say to them, yeah, you're such a hero and role model, too. You're out buying milk, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> So we can take that approach or we can validate what they're truly saying behind uh, truly saying uh, behind what um, what they believe they are asking. Right. They don't realize they don't understand the question they're asking. Sometimes we take offense to that. So my my response might be, hey, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's great to be out. You know, here's here's what happened with my disability and then begin to share what's going on and saying and then flip and ask them the question. So when was, when was the time that you may have been temporarily disabled, that you had a break in your leg, or you had an, an arm, um, or you were temporarily blind? How did, how did you feel in that situation? What, how did people treat you in that, um, that situation? And so then it's, it's, a, it's a dialogue. It's a conversation. And I think that's the more critical piece of where we can, as individuals, not just people with disabilities, but also just in general life, ask the question that gets that known box, that known area open even more instead of closing that box down. But 
John, I'll ask you this question now. I think with with obviously our two countries now being involved in so many wolf wolf uh, campaigns now, do you sometimes get asked uh, from a obviously with your impairment? Have you been involved? Have you come back from a war zone or something like that? Yeah. yeah so that's that's a great that's a great question. Uh, the answer is yes, all the time. And but I did serve in, in military. Uh, and I served in the United States Army for six years. My injury was not in war, but it was actually represents 70% of the people who are injured in the United States in the United States Army outside of war who have a physical disability and amputation, and more specific. So that gives me another opportunity, going back to the, the previous question. I can now share that statistic with others and say, you know, I was happy to serve my country. However, I was not injured in, in, in theater, but I do represent the 70% of those that were not. Oh, 70% are not injured in theater? Right, because we are a microcosm of society. And so people come up with cancer, they have amputations, uh, they get their knees twisted in a, in a training accident, um, something happens during training, or just some degenerative disease uh, like muscular dystrophy. All these things I can talk about with inside the microcosm now of the military. It was really interesting. Um, at the amputee coalition meeting this past year, I was moderating a panel and this exact question came up and I went down the path. I, I, I thought it was a brilliant way to, to talk about it uh, because many people that are amputees, and let's keep it with inside of that for myself, get asked that question or, you know, thank for their service. Some, some, one of the panelists was even, they had a meal paid for them <laughs> while they were out with somebody else that actually did serve. And the guy did an anonymous meal and paid for their meal and split. So how do you handle those situations? Uh, which is which is your question? I think it's great. One is the person. One person said, in that instance, that I can't go back to the person and tell them I, I did not serve. But this other person did. But I, I didn't serve. So what they do is they they accept the, the meal payment because they have to because it's already done, and they take whatever that meal costs and they pay it forward to someone else. So that's one that's one way. The second one was a pretty humorous story, was a woman who was in the grocery store with her child. She's, the, the woman's an amputee, been an amputee for like 30 years. And this man who obviously served like in Vietnam came running up to her and, you know, just thanked her for her service as the baby was in the cart. It's like four-year-old child was in the cart. And she was on her way, really just needed to get out of the store. And she knows what happens after that has been said, right? There's a long discussion that happens. And so she just didn't have time for that discussion to happen. So she said, thank you. <laughs> and she went, she went on, but she didn't serve. But her, her family member had served, but, but she didn't serve. And her, and her little daughter looked up and said, mommy, what did you just do there? Uh, so I thought that was kind of comical. about she shared, shared that. And the third person said, they just generally just have the conversation. Hey, thank you so much. You know, many of our, our, our patriots do serve our country and have lost limbs. However, I'm not one of them, and here's how I lost my leg. So therefore, you have now this other opportunity to explain what happened, and then you can direct them to a cause relation that you might have that you want to make them aware of and just bridge that story uh, over without making them feel you know, stupid for asking a question when they should have done a little bit more due diligence and said, maybe ask the question, hey, did you serve? You know, I see that you have now, did you serve? And ask the question first, and then you can get the, the validation response and just assuming that somebody has served when they may not have. I think the most recent one with myself was 
when I was in the gym and it was somebody I know very, not very well, but fairly well. And he asked me, I think it was more to do in terms of, because uh, he's, I think he's a volunteer with the the Limbless Association in this country. So it was, oh. I think, off the top of my head, it was something to do with a, a limb association or it might be yeah. the military one to get more, What's what? It, it's it's very much stigmatized in terms of it's got an older population related to it, so it, it I think it's harder for it to gain new, well you could say ex servicemen of, of say in their twenties thirties become injured because yeah. they've got that assumption oh it's only for old people who would or you could say decrepit in 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 a negative way. And he was obviously inquiring about whether I'd served. I said, obviously for me, no, I have not been in the military service, but I've got family, well, be it my mother worked for NATO, my father was in the US Air Force, and right, right. before that, my my family has served in the armed forces. So it's, yes, and I had to kind of go and maybe delve a bit further and kind of go off track, track here. I, we were asked in high school to do a kind of a family history of because it would have been oh, I can't, the anniversary, I think, the end of World War Two, and it coincided um, to to look at our family tree. So obviously, I'd asked my well, now my grandmother's deceased. What was my family history in terms of how far does it go back? And obviously, asked my dad in terms of that side of the family, and it was quite interesting to see. How many? Um, how many actual members of my family that do be in a theatre? So it's like it was. It. I think it. It opens your eyes to see. Okay. You might not be interested in history itself, but it it brings it more personal to to you to you, and you can find out more about your family. So it's like, okay, I never knew about this, and it and you can kind of see what what they've been up to in their life and what kind of things they had to overcome. Yeah. That, that's, that's for sure. And I think that we all have that opportunity to do that. And again, remember, if you go back to the Joe Harry window model, we're going to try and open up that unknown area. So we don't want to squeeze it down because um, the other two boxes are what I know about you that you don't know about yourself and what you know about me that I don't know about myself. What, what it is that I mask and what it is that you mask. So those are the other two boxes. And the more we can reveal to each other with inside of those boxes, the more that known space opens up for us as, as well. Uh, and that's, you know, that takes trust. Um, and some people are adverse to risk or taking more risk than others. There's some people that are going to jump off a cliff and, you know, and have a parachute strapped on. And there's some people that's going to say, you know, I'm not doing that. And so there's, there's a, a matter of trust with inside of, um, and varying degrees of trust uh, inside of a person's, um, their, their, their body type or their, what, what they think they would do to open up that known space to engage with, with others. I think you raised a good point there in terms of that. And we come back to what we were talking about, adaptability uh, between a congenital amputee as opposed to somebody who's uh, obviously became disabled. I probably fall both sides of the fence in terms of that argument because obviously when I was younger, I didn't like people asking about, well, what's happened to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, things like that. I think I had a bad experience and talked to my mum. She was asked, and I don't know how old I would have been, I think maybe about, I don't know, four or five, maybe six years old. 
and she overheard somebody say, what has she done to her child to make him be... You're thinking, oh my God. What? But then you, you think on ref, on reflection and maybe have a bit of right. thinking here. Why, why would a right sane person want to inflict harm on their child? Yeah, it's... Those... <clears throat> I, again, it's, it's hard because you, you try to figure out how do I how do I answer that, you know, without getting emotional, <laughs> to, you know, because that's my mom, and 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 you know, she did not do anything wrong with 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 that. Um, and it's I think it's, it's the same thing when I see with like with my wife right now, right? So if someone says says something that's maybe a little negative and, and she overhears it, but I haven't heard it she gets very defensive on it and, um, and, and, you know, rightfully so. Uh, but I've always made it, try to make it my mission after I had my experience to understand this whole inspirational value, that inspiration is really the catalyst to motivation, that motivation in turn causes actions and that actions now lead us into results. And those results, those transformational results re-inspire us or allow someone else that's watching a process to catch their vision once I understood that, then I began to become more intentional with the opportunities. And so that's what I now teach others on how to look for the op- opportunities despite the obstacles that might be around them. And that could be with inside the disability space or it could be outside. It doesn't really matter. Uh, we, there are always opportunities to be gained. Even from, you know, we talk about the, earlier the, the election that's happening in the United States. There's, there's always opportunity to, to look at. And we have a, polit- a polarized right and we have a polarized left and somewhere in the middle is going to be the, you know, the truth. Uh, so we have to begin to look at what are some of the, um, the, the benefits and values uh, that we can impart onto others. So I would say back in, your, in the case of the person that's coming, what has the mother done to the child? You know, kind of asking that person that, the question and saying, what do you, what do you think? And, and put the ball back in their court. What types of things would, would, would you think that that person did to the child? What would you do to your child if they were born with a situation like that? Well, I wouldn't do anything. And so you get them thinking about how they would answer that question. Instead of you answering it for them, let them stew in it a little bit to come up with a logical conclusion that there was nothing that was done to that, that person. And then we can have a further future dialogue with that. Um, and talk about others that might be in that same similar situation. And now we've just changed the mindset of a person so that they will not ask that question again or ask a more intelligent question uh, the next time they see a person with a disability and they're not shunning it or they're not associating blame for for it, but they're actually coming along as a problem solver with it. But then, John, do you not think that it's in the long run – and I don't know why I had that shift to I'm very open-minded now. I don't, I don't really care. I think people yeah. have that assumption, oh, you don't want to be asked about your disability. I don't care. If, yeah. it's, it'd be interesting. And when it comes from a kid's perspective, it's interesting what, what, what kind of question is going to come out of their mouth. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, I commend you because you asked a question I've never heard before. But in most cases, I said to the parents, it's probably yeah. a question I've heard hundreds of times. Sure. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think it's one of, the, one of the ways I think people will come to acceptance and embrace because there is this, for, for a non-congenital, 
there is this grief. You know, I went through this whole grief process, right? It was fast. It was a very quick process, but I still went through it and I had to go back and actually under, understand it. Um, on the other side of it, however, is the ability to, um, oh, what's the, uh, to, to, to begin to look at it with a, a different lens. So the kid might ask the question, um, but now we have come through and I think we've come through because, at least in my case, maybe your case, because of sport. Sport allows us to see ourselves with a different lens mm. of what is possible, what we can do versus what we cannot do. And so that's a very validating thing for many people that were not invited into the game in the first place. In the United States, it happens all the time. When the school bell rings and the people go out, the kids go out for recess, inevitably, teams are picked to play whatever sport is on the, on the playground, kickball or uh, fast pitch or capture the flag or red rover, red rover, whatever the game is. But the kid that's never picked is a kid that's is disabled. So they never get a chance to experience that level of, um, of play with their peers. So as the peer group moves on, the gap gets larger and larger because I cannot play the game, I'm not invited to play the game, and, and the social, the social um, um, capital is now being lost in this game, in this play. So then I want to get to the higher levels in high school in the United States, uh, the, the, the years of 9, 10, 11, and 12, my social caste is now set, and I'm not even thinking about sport as a person with a disability because I was never allowed to play earlier. But what sports does is it gives this validation of who we are and what we are capable of and that in that decreases the social capital because other people begin to see oh there's value you can you can actually do this sport and once they understand it and learn that then that minimized social capital reflects more positively on that individual and they have a better view of themselves and a mindset of themselves so that the question that comes later on if the person asks about the disability they are more likely to say something that's positive because they've had this positive experience associated with it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, the, the adverse is also true. If you don't have a positive experience with people and people have always kind of bashed on you all the time, you kind of go into this cocoon and this shell. And if somebody asks you a question about your disability, you might be a little bit more um, harsh in your response or not likely to say about all these great experiences that you had or just say, oh, you know, this is just who I am. You're more likely to say, you know, why are you bothering me and um, get away from me because you, you've had this whole experience that society has dumped on you and you couldn't get the job. And you, just like in the Yes We Can video, you know, the most poignant part of that video is that when the door opens up, and for those that are on, you need to watch that video, Yes, we, yes, yes I Can. Uh, it's a great video put up by the, the BBC. Or no, I was UK4, right? The thing is UK4, Channel 4. Yeah. Yeah, Channel 4. So watch that video. It's, it's good. But the, 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 I think the most poignant part of that video is when the door opens up, you see the rugby player in there and says, no, you can't, right? And so that's, that's what people place based upon what their projections are on someone else that's actually out there doing what they need to be doing. So if I have a negative experience and I can't get to the job interview because it's on the, the second or third floor, right? And, I, and I'm using a wheelchair and there's no lift to get me up there. 
it's not because of my capabilities or my intellect that I can't get that job. It's because of a physical barrier that can't get me to the interview that's up on, the, on top of the floor. So now that candidate, or not the candidate, but the, the company's just lost out on a very viable candidate because you haven't created access for that candidate. So you hire somebody else that might be less than because you couldn't interview the person that actually has the capability to do it. And so we have to shift that mindset for, uh, for individuals, and it's up to all of us to, to do that, to, to knock down those barriers and bring not only the, the, um, the non-disabled public along, but those individuals that have been kind of dumped on by the public that, are, that, have, that have had this negative experience and pull them out of the shadows so, and, and show them what is exactly possible, those that do have a disability. But could you not go a little bit further that, than that, John, in terms of those situations, would that, in essence, possibly make people extroverted, introverted? Obviously, my, if I use my own experience, my family is very much introverted in, in, in a simple term. Yeah. But I am very much the opposite, of, as you touched upon, with having that other lens in sport. I'm very confident in my sporting endeavours. I won't say all the time, I would say most of the time, but we do find, and I don't, it must be a family trait or something, uh, people in the street will come up to you and speak to you. And, and I, as a child, it, 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 I won't say it concerned me. It was like, why is this individual speaking to you? Or it would be a question, do you know that person? And I think as, I've, as I have got older, it, the situation is arising with me, but then people sometimes ask, Ask me, do you mind that I speak to you? And I think the last occasion that happened, I was waiting for a train. It's like, no, it's delayed. It's, I kind of put it in this light. I, if I talk to you, and as I did, I may learn something new. So it's, 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 it's very much having that open mind to, well, speaking to this, ind- this individual about whatever it was, you may learn something new. You may have learned something that you didn't know. So it's having that open mind that you can maybe gain an essence of knowledge. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's always, we will always learn. Even when I'm out uh, presenting and speaking to, you know, uh, companies, one of the, the most challenging times and the, the, the best times in, in my presentations is this kind of this space where I call improving the audience. Um, and so it's actually hearing what they're thinking about the presentation in the moment, in the real time, getting the real feedback, um, and then shifting the presentation based upon um, what they have given me. Uh, it's really fun to do. It's, 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 you, need to, you need the skill set to do it. So I wouldn't advise anybody just to do it. So you need to have some facilitation skills. But it's great to act then and shift to the professor mode and write down the new thoughts because those thoughts are brilliant because now people are putting it into their own vernacular, into their own language. And so we do learn together. So I may have a thought in the line of, of, um, of what I'm trying to get out to a particular audience in a, in a, in a keynote address or a training module, but, there's, but I don't think I know everything, and I don't. So it's, even when I have questions and, and, and answers, period, um, it's never questions and answers. It's always questions and, and opinions. Because I have opinions about stuff, I don't have any answers about hardly anything. I may have an answer like on, on, on what do you do with your leg and all this other thing. I may can answer that question for you. But there's so many different ways people even put on their socket, for example, that 
I may do it one way that works for me, but somebody else might do it some, some totally different. So my opinion on putting this, the socket on is this. Uh, my opinion for what knee I use is this. But there are lots of different knees on the market. So you can, you can use a different knee. Um, and I always try to frame it in that way because it, it just opens up the door a little bit wider for all of us to learn in that one environment, in that, in that, um, in that, in that aspect. Could you not go one step further and like have a, a, a group discussion and say open it up to, well, this is the question I have been asked. What do you guys find more beneficial, et cetera? And then you yeah. get loads of different answers. And thus the, well, as you term it, it's probably an opinion because it's, it's what's best for you. So it's not really right. an answer. It's how you would do it. And, and then that person can then utilize we'll call it a resource now because it's probably a better way of looking at it and yeah. they find from those the best way they can go about it yeah so that, that's exactly right it's it's if you if you're able you can get a lot of opinions i mean there's i think there's a point where you have to cut off the opinion right now because unless you you know how to facilitate a, a larger dialogue usually I, I stop with about three to five uh depending upon time because I really do want to get a collective of the room uh, of what different tables or uh, people are thinking about. Because what that does, it's very personal to me, right? I'm going to learn more than they will learn because I'm going to learn about their industry, which I have no clue about. You know, I just talked to an automotive, major automotive industry uh, last week, four times. Um, so I learned a lot about the organization by asking them questions after my kind of what I call my signature story. Um, and I learned what they were thinking, what they heard, and what the value of it was for them, more so than I ever could have thought about the value for them if it would have just been me trying to pontificate my great wisdom that I have in my own small little world, right? Um, and I heard some really valuable things come back that I can now take and put into my next proposal to another business and organization that yes, it helps me, but I know it's gonna help them. And that's really where I, I wanna be. I wanna be able to be of service to another group and organization. And this whole collective that I have now helps me do that in a much better way because I'm listening to the feedback of all these other groups and companies. And by the way, most of them think that they're very different than each other, but we're really pretty much the same. But do you think that's an assumption to start with that people think, or oh, because it's, or if we use your analogy of the automotive industry and kind of cast it against where I work within the fitness industry and they say it's different. Well, not really. Okay. You could probably generalize and say fitness, health, sport. Yes. Mm -hmm. It does come into one bubble, but they've got, <coughs> they've all got offshoots in different directions, right. which make them a little bit different. So <clears throat> to kind of get to my point here, you could probably find similarities in industries that are totally different, as, as you said. Oh, totally. So you take fitness like you're in, in the automotive industry. So I can see fitness. I, I can see the, 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 um, um, what both industries would want to learn from each other. They may, the automotive industry might want to come in and, and see how do you do customer service? How do you keep a, a client? How do you engage with your client on a, on a consistent basis to make sure that they don't walk to another gym down the street? So, those are things that, how do I keep my client um, in this one dealership and not have them go to another dealership? How do I engage with them after the sale of a, of a, of a vehicle? 
Uh, how do I manage their parts and services? All these things are similarities, which we can learn from other models. And the fact that this, this company brought in, not only myself, but people that were in the, in the um, phenomenal in the cooking industry, uh, people that were phenomenal in um, uh, uh, the one lady that does the uh, rent, rent, rent a gown or rent a, rent a dress or something like that. So she takes all these high expensive gowns for, uh, for ladies that wanted to have this, these immaculate weddings and things, and they could rent the dresses instead of buying them, you know, so rent something for $300 versus buying them at $5,000 that they're only going to wear one time. It's a great model. She's, she's a gazillionaire now, right? So it's what can you learn from the customer service that she is doing and how she's done this industry into the automotive industry. So a lot of these things are, are really great case studies to help another business get down the road and get down the road a little faster. But uh, it probably comes to that, that mindset at the end of the day, because people are, you could say act like robots at times because this is how I've been instructed to do something. Oh, I, I get to this fork in the road. Oh, everybody's going right. I'll go right. As opposed to maybe, and I believe, and this is my opinion now, I think it's maybe a societal shift that some people, I won't generalize and say it's everybody, but most people in society are very much, they can't, have this critical way of thinking it's like oh I'll follow the sheep and follow the masses mm-hmm. uh, and we touched upon it off air about people are very much stuck in their way of thinking and don't look at the other somebody's other argument whereas I think I don't know maybe it could be a generational thing uh, I touched talked to somebody yesterday about he, he said it was more so it's people in their 20s it's like well you could, that's probably the generalization because I didn't think like that. I, I had an open mind in my 20s, but that's maybe, that's me and I could maybe fall outside that box. But it's to say that people maybe are not accepting of, of, of another person's argument and obviously thus not able to critically think. So it was, what do you think the kind of the results of that might be? Yeah, I, I, th- I think the results, if I'm understanding your question right, is that when we limit our thinking, we limit our, our own, and we put ourselves in our own boxes, um, we have a less uh, scope view of the world. Uh, and we think that our brain power is getting us there on our, uh, by ourselves uh, or with our small group of, of, of friends. Um, but in actuality, because we only look one way and have one way of thinking, we don't get the, the scope of everybody else that's around there. Um, for example, in the National uh, Speakers Association in, 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 um, in the United States, it's about 88% uh, primarily Caucasian, about 3% white, and then kind of everybody else makes up, uh, I mean, 3% black. And then everybody else makes up the rest. So when you're making awards and leadership decisions, it's being made with the 88%, right? Does that mean that they are the most um, competent or the best? Or do they just have the most volume? And so my my thought is, if you don't look like the people that you are out there representing, because the organization was only about, I would say, I don't know, 3,500, 4,000 professional speakers in the United States that are part of that association. 
but yet there are um, at least uh, 10 times that that are actually out there doing it that look like the rest of the entire population of the United States, you can't go out and reach that population because you only look one way. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So how would you bring in somebody else into the fold and tell them about this great organization because it is a phenomenal organization and it gets you down the road in business faster, but you can only, you're only thinking one way because that's the way you were brought up. Plus your cultural backgrounds, your cultural shifts. So you don't have, you don't have the, 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 maybe the capacity to go into some of the other worlds that I might be able to get into. So if I'm on their board and we have a lot of other people that are of other descents on the board, now we can go into our worlds and begin to pull people in and, and cause this huge value that, that comes and everybody can learn from this, this, this mod, module. And, not, and then take it, away from, take it away from race or gender, right? And put into this, into this aspect of expertise. Just because somebody is not a keynote speaker doesn't mean that they don't have value. They might be a great trainer or they might be a great online platform deliverer. Um, they, they might do products. They might do podcasts. So you have to look at how people are delivering services because those services are done with excellence and you can learn. I can learn from somebody that's doing a great podcast uh, to help me do a better podcast myself. <clears throat> right. Um, and it's just like, take that analogy and move it into sports. We look at the best sports athletes if we're trying to make a Paralympic team or an Olympic team and see how they're doing it so that we can do it and maybe do a little bit better so we can make the team. We don't look at the worst or we don't look at the, at the average person because that doesn't get us all the way there. Gold medals, bronze medals, silver medals are, run, are won because of, uh, of a competitive excellence spirit that is looking at the best and trying to do one notch better. It's the Olympic model of sitius, altius, fortius, swifter, higher, stronger. And we don't get strong by being, by being looking one way. We get stronger by taking the diversity uh, and, the, and, and seeking the power of that diversity, wherever it comes from, to move the needle, to open that, to go from the unknown space to the known space and open that space up larger. But John, could we not use this argument to say that in most essences, in anything in life, it's not, in most cases, it's not, you don't get a job, you don't get into sport, that, probably to a lesser degree, because you're the best for the, for the job, it's who you know. Yeah, I, I think that that, that is true. Um, but that's, in, in the utopic world, right, if you're, really, if you're really striving to be the best, that's why I, like, that's why I love track and field. The first person across the line is the winner. There is no subjectivity to that. Everybody starts, it's, it's, it's called, um, um, oh, there was a great quote I heard about it. Uh, what's the name of it? It's, it's uh, attention is the currency of performance. So in the perfect world, if we're running a 100 meter dash and we all have the same amount of time to prepare, the gun goes off. The winner is the first person across the line at the other end. There's no, and, and, you, and that is what you accept. The distortion comes by our experiences and we begin to manipulate the data. That's where the distortion comes. So Harvard study or Yale study, I can't remember, Cornell study, I can't remember which one. Applications. 
people that have gone to those schools and we take these applications and we, they, we take out a hundred of them and you send them off to high performing companies because they're all our, our great applications. You send out a hundred and you just change the names on a batch. Change the name to ethnic names. Same applications. It takes almost a 7% high, uh, seven more tries for a person of color that may have a name like Tyrone or Jerome um, or, or maybe like, uh, not a Tiffany, but a, 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 you know, take, take another ethnic name, a, a Jose um, or a Lupita. It takes more effort and more tries, seven more tries than a person with a name like Charles or John um, to get that same opportunity with the exact same resume. Take seven more tries. So that's a distortion of the data, right? Based upon my intellect of what I think might be happening with this other person because their name is different. They might be of Hispanic descent or African-American descent. So I, uh, society tells me that that might be more of a risk to have them in. It's not true, but that's what way I feel because of the way I was raised. Because in that proverbial grocery store, my parents told me that this is wrong. Right? So I take my kid down the another aisle, and as they grow up and become the human resource professionals, they say, oh, my parents said that dealing with Hispanics, dealing with African Americans, dealing with uh, Asian Americans, that is something that's subpar to who I am. So therefore, I need to look for somebody who looks like me to fill this position. Seven more times more so than I will look for the other person. So that's where we distort the data, and it's no longer a 100-meter dash race. It's now a distortion of the race. And I heard a great, it's not really a quote, but he, this professional was saying within there, with us, it's councils, you could probably say to us like a state department. He, they said with any CV or application they got, and obviously the person got to that stage of the interview, the name, the address, uh, what else was covered up? Uh, say all they knew was obviously their qualifications, why they were f- best for this job, and that was yeah. it. And they didn't know uh, the individual until they come into the room, so obviously they don't have that prerequisite of, okay, uh, I may know this individual, so I'm going favor to favoritize his, his, his application, or I don't yeah. know this person, right. and he's got a bad history, that track record down the line, so obviously I, I've already got a negative mindset straight off. I think it gives that level playing field. Obviously, it, it, it's you could say it's probably a good model because it gives, as you attested to, it's that discrimination to a certain extent by just by what what somebody's called is a prerequisite right. somebody's decision. So you could probably dispel that um, segregation from from the off. Yes. So um, and I'm writing down it. So sorry for typing, but I'm. I'm you give, you give me thoughts, and I, I got to put it down. So, so I, um, you make a point that uh, one of the I love this guy. Uh, his name is Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, he makes this point uh, pretty specifically about the in the in the criminal justice system as well as in um, the application system is and in the and he used the example of behind the veil for musical auditions for orchestras, where a veil is put up. And the most competent people that you invite in, you can't tell who they are behind the veil. 
All they get is a passage to play, and the expert ears on the other side pick up who they think is the best one for the job in the orchestra. It went from the orchestras being primarily dominant all male to almost a 50-50 split now in using this process. We see shows like The Voice uh, uh, in the United States. And the Voice is, you have four chairs that are turned with their backs to the voice that's coming out to sing. And they only will turn their chair around if they think they can work with that voice to make them win the competition. So if they don't think they can make a, a break with that voice, they don't turn their chair around. So they can't see the individual. So it takes all the subjectivity out of, I see this person and I can market this person instead of thinking about, is this voice what I can market rather than this total package? Um, is it, um, is the person thin? Are they heavy? Are, are they African-American? Are they white? Are they blonde? Are they black hair? What, you know, so all those things come into my mentality of the marketability with inside the United States instead of their actual voice. And so that's why I really like that show. And then they begin to work with the person that they selected, right? Just based upon the merits of their voice. But we've also got the same program over here. Would you not say, and I think, I think it changed between series one and series two. They did, this is probably a negative thing on it, on that probably, that yep. way of thinking and doing it that way. They were more worried about winning the competition in some cases where it would be, they would suit their way of singing kind of fit their mold whereas they sometimes didn't pick the best singers. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think the initial, and I, I don't know the entire selection process, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going about what I see. Um, I think the initial way they are selecting is based upon, can I win with this voice? So no matter what they do with the voice afterward, and that person, that talent, they're still making the initial decision based upon what they believe they could or could not do with that, that individual's talent in the first place. So I don't know how they're being selected to get to, to the audition, right? So I know there's a audition there, so they're not bringing in anybody that can't really sing. And I don't know if that's a blind audition there or if they're already pre-selecting who they want for their show to look good on the show uh, for the people to actually select and turn around and, and, and judge. So I don't know about that initial screening, but I, I, I think that the people that are at least those judges, they have to make the determination based upon what's being presented before them. And they hit their buzzes based upon yes or no, I can work with this person. Uh, and then that, then yes, and this is a competition, right? So now we're going to move from selection phase into competition phase. I'm going to take, it's like us picking um, a, a, a sports team, right? So you pick, I pick, you pick, I pick, and then we go out and play the game. So and all, all bets are off after that. I'm going to use my talents to the best of my ability. Um, and I want to use my other talents that I have on my team to try to beat your team. But I think you raised a good point in terms of like marketing and branding. And obviously from, if we kind of, and we talked about this off air about the Paralympic movement. Do you yeah. believe that to a certain extent they are riding the coattails of the Olympics a little bit at times? Yeah, I think, the answer is yes. Um, I need to caveat that yes, though, a little. A, a little. As I've seen the movement from kind of both sides, um, the Olympics has a history, longevity of over 100 years that they've been in existence. And it's very easy. It's easier to promote the Olympics because people get it. They understand it. They know what they're looking at. The Paralympics is, is challenging. 
And it's challenging because people don't know what they're looking at at first. When we talk about marketing, when you're talking about coming on and supporting. Yes, on the inside, we all know that this is great sports, great competition. You got to train your butt off to actually be a Paralympic athlete. Uh, I had to train harder as a Paralympian than I ever had to do as an Olympian. And I say that, but people still, they just say, oh, what's this whole disability sport thing about? You know, is it charitable? Is it like Special Olympics? I, I really don't get it. And so we have to understand where people are coming from with inside the movement. And I think it's inherent upon our movement itself. Our responsibility must be to make it as easy as possible for the, the, the watching public to understand what they're looking at. So when I said earlier in our off-air conversation was when I line up in the 100-meter in the dash finals uh, and the 200-meter dash finals, and I'm in the T42 classification, T for track, four for the amputee classification, and two for the level of functionality within inside that class, in this case, above the knee amputees, single legs, unilaterals, and there is a person that lines up with two legs in that final now I've just distorted what this 100-meter dash is all about. So the question is going to come not about who won the 100-meter dash, but why is that guy in there with two legs? That is more difficult to sell to a sponsor who's trying to just make everybody understand that this is just great sport. Because in my mind, I want to say, that's unfair. How is this fair? What are they doing here? And if there are so many events like that that combine these classifications together, then we can't articulate it to a, a larger groups that could come on and promote it for us and to, to, to share it. I have to become a, a huge subject matter expert in every sport to explain very easily why this is going on, right? So you need, you need a commentator there that has a wherewithal to not only talk about the sport, but also the classification that go along with the sport to make it palatable to an audience. Well, you've already got a step forward, <laughs> Matt, in terms of for the commentator, yes, you would like to get an athlete or somebody that has been involved in, in that field of work before, but as we touched upon off air, classification across the board is a minefield as it is. And I think track and field is probably the worst of them all. <laughs> it's, it's very challenging, you know, and, and, it took me, I still don't understand all the classification, right? I don't understand why rules shift and change. I, I don't understand that if a person as such as yourself um, <clears throat> makes themselves fit and you still, by doctor's note, are the same person that you have been, why you would move up a classification, a category, based upon your fitness level and not your disability. So if the whole purpose is to become more fit as an athlete, that is what should be rewarded and not discounted because, oh, well, you're throwing further, you're jumping farther because of this fitness level that you have as this individual with a disability. You haven't changed your disability. You've just become more fit. So maybe we missed something in our, in our um, way that we evaluated you. No, you didn't. This is where we can go with disability. And this is the highest level of fitness that we have seen to date. So let's make this the benchmark and the standard to drive the sports upward. That's where I think that is more understandable than to shift somebody upward in the classification because they're just more fit than somebody else who didn't take the time to work in that uh, as hard as that other person 
inside of that class. I think I can use a good example to actually fit that mold. I think off the top of my head, it would have been the CP, um, which country? I think it was the Irish team in the Beijing games. A few of their guys got be reclassified, but I think almost classified out of the sport because to that nature, they got to what you talked about. They got themselves to be as fit as possible and thus were termed not disabled enough to compete. Right. Yeah, and, that, and that's that's a shame because now we lose the effectiveness of the of quote-unquote disabled sport, right? Because if I see that this is now the model and this was evaluated at one level before, and now because of fitness, I have gotten myself to a higher level, functioning level, I can show other people who are in that category classification that this is where excellence is and not to try to say well don't get too fit because if you get too fit you're going to be classed out i think that hurts our sport and that's my opinion right um that, that you know i i understand that i know there's probably a lot more that goes into it uh but when you're trying to sell it when we're talking about marketing and we're trying you know to use sports uh in the fitness level behind it we really have to look at um, if we make a determination and recommendation that this person is this level of function and they get themselves to a higher performance level, that should not be a part of the evaluation for their, their performance level should not be part of the evaluation for how functional uh, that they are inside of that classification because the class didn't change. And I'm, and I'm strictly speaking about if you are, were evaluated as a, um, a spinal cord injury, um, paraplegic and you are permanently classed with inside of that and you get yourself so fit your classification should not change just because you're, you're fit you're more fit we should keep that same class if you're, if you're out throwing everybody by you know 30 meters so be it you know that also hurts the sport I get it because when somebody's winning by a lot you're, you're like well what's the deal with this you got to explain that one away, but that's easier to explain than this person in this category and is more fit than these other individuals. It's like the UConn women's basketball program in the United States. They just have talent and they're going to be in the finals every single year because they have outdistanced themselves from the class. I say, let the rest of the class catch up. Right. Let them oh, yeah. It's the right mind. It's the right mind set. To, I think that's the, it's, it comes back to the American ethos. It's, it's. I'm going to be competitive. You don't like it, so be it. I think it's very awkward for me being half British, half American, and seeing how sport is taken in this country. Uh, and talking, they they love participation. You're thinking, uh, well, life doesn't work like that. If you, you're you are, but America is starting to go that way as well. Like uh, America's been that way for a little while now. <laughs> but giving people trophies for turning up, it's like <laughs> right, right, right. You're not right. going to get that in life. Good. Yeah, you don't. Uh, that, if, you, no. if you haven't done your job right, there's a door. <laughs> right. Yeah, for for sure. Um, yeah, that don't get me started down that path of of entitlement. Um, that's that's just a whole that's a whole other whole other issue, right? Um, I usually frame that when I talk to businesses and school, more uh, collegiate professionals and school kids uh, that usually say, hey, coach, you know, I should have won that race. I said, what'd you get? I got fourth. Well, then that's what you earned. 
Come back next week and, and, and improve. Let's do the work this week so you can so you can get a better improvement. So, but the the track doesn't lie, right? The box doesn't lie. If you earn fourth, then you earn fourth. I had a bad start. Well, we need, we need to work on your start. You know, right. I had a bad midsection acceleration phase. Okay, we need to work on your acceleration phase. I think don't, don't take away from the the guy or the gal that actually won because they outprepared you. But then, do you not think it goes a bit deeper that in t- in terms of uh, it's maybe you could even turn that as an excuse? It's like you're kind of sh- shying away from what the actual problem is. You're not, uh, in all honesty, accepting where you've come. You're kind of making putting kind of barriers in your way. Oh, I, I could have done this. I should have done that. Those are all what ifs. If you don't put the yeah. hard work in. That's what's going to happen. I think maybe the better terminology maybe you could use is if you've done everything in your power on the day and it wasn't good enough, that's, that's life. It's, you can, you, there's nothing else. That's you right. can do. But if you kind of say, well, I should have done this, I could have done that. Well, why didn't you in training? That's right. And, and, and that goes back, you know, we go back to that. That's why I love the Joe Harry window model so much. Because in that unknown unknown, there may be some unknowns there that you didn't realize or know about that you should have done. For me, I lost the, not lost, I won the silver medal and the person that won the gold medal, Lucas Christian, won by four and a half inches, right, over my jump. So yes, I won silver. And yes, we're the only two over five meters. And I did everything in my power that, I, that was known to me to compete for that. However, there were some things I didn't know because I was a new amputee. And because I, I didn't have the experience that he had. So he had, what, where he beat me was an experience. Uh, where I beat him was on talent. When I say that is because he was, he, he could run faster because he was a, a, a through the knee amputee. So he could weight bear on the knee platform where I have to weight bear at my hip. So therefore I'm giving up about, um, oh, about a foot and a foot and a half of, um, of power into the ground that he has that I don't have. But I have more technique because I already know how to run and jump from a able body perspective. So I know what right is. And if you look at the jump uh, it, on, on the YouTube channel, you can see his way he, he, he ran and how I ran. And you can see I had a better technique and better form, right? Because I knew how to, how to run that. However, what I didn't know was when I was training, there's a piece called an extension stop. It stops the knee from going into hyperextension. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize I needed this piece on my leg. And so three times I pulled the guts right out of the back of my hydraulic unit during training because I didn't have an extension stop. And I was using the bar in the back of the hydraulic to stop my knee from going forward. So as I would get on and, and sprint hard, the, the hydraulic would pull out of the back. So I would have to send it back into the manufacturer. I'd be down two to three weeks each time I did that. So I did some other type of training got in the pool or I you know, did some walking or walked up hills. Got, I did some weight workouts, but that two or three weeks times three times is nine weeks of training. And so does that nine week of training actually equate to the four and a half inches I lost the gold medal by? If I was still training and being able to run without, and, and I knew I had that extension stop, stopper, would it would have equated to me being able to win the gold instead of winning the silver? The second part was viscosity. 
inside the knee cylinder unit is uh, a thicker weight of oil. And I didn't find that out until uh, seven days prior to my jump in Sydney that I could have more viscosity and get my leg to respond faster. So now I'm running faster than I've ever been running down the long jump runway because I had this, this, this piece overnighted to me. We put it into the leg and now I'm running faster than I've ever run. Well, what if I had this, this piece three months ago? Unbeknownst to me, that's the unknown area. Who knew about that to get it to me? The manufacturer did, but they didn't know my needs because I didn't articulate my needs because I didn't even realize my needs. So I think, you know, and answering your question, that's where we have to look at that unknown space again of what we don't realize and what we don't need. So we have to ask more questions of, of people to try to get and in, in, uh, to, to cover our blind spots. But then from a track and field sense and very much the field events are probably a little bit more difficult to predetermine what's going to happen because well, wind is a factor. Um, like you said, you touched upon the viscosity of the knee joint. Well, wouldn't that, if we put it on the negative side of looking at it, you going faster, wouldn't you then have to then change your marks as well? And then that's, I did. I told that's going to change things up as well. I, I had to change my marks because I was, I was following when I went to my practice session because I was faster on the runway and so I had, to, I had to readjust what I was doing for the past, um, oh, about a month, six, six weeks lead up. My mark was pretty much the same because I couldn't go any faster. Even though I felt more fit, I couldn't run faster. So now my mark had to move back and my, and my checkpoint had to move back in order to get on the board. And in fact, it was so off on the first jump in the finals that I jumped off my wrong foot. So it's, it's, that's muscle motor memory because I, I jumped off my left foot before it, was, before it was amputated. And it's also because I was running so fast down the runway that my, my marks were totally off. So I, I, was, uh, I, was, I jumped off my wrong foot on the first jump. I fouled on my second jump, and I, I got a safe jump in on my third jump. On my fourth jump is when I tied the world record on, on Lucas's jump. And, on the, uh, and then on the, the fifth jump, I fouled, and uh, the, the sixth jump, I, I fouled. So, yes, that impacted my performance. However, I'm, I'm sharp enough, and I've been jumping long enough to know what I, what I need to do, right? So I'm not, gonna, I'm not using that as an excuse. What I am saying, though, is um, had I known about the extension stopper and the viscosity earlier, it would have allowed me to train in the zone six weeks prior that probably would have changed the outcome of the, of the performance. But then, do you not think that it's like you say? You did. You say it comes. You take onus on the responsibility because you didn't ask the right question. But do you think in this day and age, it's more so the developing, not the developing countries, the more capitalistic countries have access to those outlets of well, what is develop, uh, developing technology? Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. Um, I also think that um that the, the the more the more technology is is coming and is being used and the more widespread it's used the more it does get down into kind of developing nations as well 
so we see in 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 um there's a knee that's done by Autobach. I think it's the circus the circular knee now. Um, we see that in developing countries as well as uh, kind of more capitalistic countries, um, and both are using this, the same product. The interesting thing now, with what I think that we have to look at, I think the next big thing is what is the original intent. Uh, so what I mean by that is, was it intended for me as a long jumper to jump off my prosthesis or was it intent for me to, to measure performance jumping off my sound limb? That's a question I think we have to answer um, because now it comes down to if I can do a penultimate step right with the gentleman from like uh, the gentleman from Germany, um, I could jump over eight meters. I just got to put myself, because I don't have to, I don't really even have to do a penultimate step, which is the, the step prior to the jump to lower the center of gravity, uh, the center mass, so that you can put the leg right underneath the, the hip and then spring off into a jump. I don't have to do that anymore with, with an artificial limb. I can do a very small one, and the reaction is so fast, I can't even simulate it on the, on the jump, on my sound leg, on my good leg. So am I now measuring... Audubach versus Osher versus whatever manufacturer is, or am I actually measuring the distance for the athlete? So if I were to put um, the the what's the German's name that's that's jumping over eight meters? I know you're talking Ream. about, but I can't think of his Mar name. Marcus Ream. So if I were to put Marcus Ream, if he I don't know if he's jumping on Audubach or I don't know what he jumps on, but if I say okay, Marcus, now you're going to jump on Audubach today. Now you're going to jump on Osher tomorrow, and you're going to jump on, uh, say, Ohio Willowwood the next day. What does he say? No, I'm only going to jump on the Autobot leg. So see, we're now we're just measuring the capacity of of the technology that's out in someone's limb. Um, who was it? Um, Oscar Pistorius said the same thing, right? When he got beat by Fuentes from uh, from in the 200 meter dash at the, the games in, 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 was in London, right? What did he say? He said, well, his legs are taller. How do you make that argument? We just went to the Olympic Games saying that is, there's no advantage with raising your legs. So we got to have this, this kind of technical, this technical uh, conversation. I think you go a step further than that. I think he had no leg to stand on because he was one of the first to have those legs so you can't say well this person is taller yeah you were the first person to have them in the first place and the other right. the, the other people were running on normal legs so it's like well right. as an athlete it's like nope that's sour that sounds like sour grapes to me yeah I mean you can't have it both ways and I think he backtracked off it pretty fast because you realize what he was saying um, but, you, but you can't have sour grapes on it when you're the one that actually is promoting that this is legit so, so, so either it wasn't then or it isn't now. Uh, one of the two. You, you can't have it. You can't have it both ways. So we really have to take a look, and that's another thing that hurts marketing. Um, unless you're going to make it a show, and then it helps marketing. Because if it's a show and it's just jump as far as you can with the artificial leg, and Marcus Ream now jumps nine meters with his artificial leg, then the the, the cameras just go ballistic to say, look, look at the technology. Of how, how much this guy can manipulate technology. But if I put Marcus off of his sound leg, because he has a very capable sound leg, 
can he even muster seven and a half meters? I jumped eight meters 40 with two legs, with both my, with both my, when I was long jumping in college. So eight meters 40, and he's jumping 850 with one leg. So when I have to do the penultimate step, I can't get the reaction time that he can get with the artificial limb. And so I'm not saying that one is better than the other or that I'm not arguing that. What I am saying is that you, you have to have a, a specific measurement. Are we, what are we going to measure? What is it that we measure? Um, and so I, I, I've always been on the opinion to measure, if you have a sound leg, you, that's what we should be measuring. We should measure how much you can jump or run off of your sound leg. Well, I think it's going down a slippery slope in terms of the technology advancements because you look at it from, say, the, the sprints. Yeah. The, the single leg amputees can no longer compete against the, the amputee peers because maybe over the 100, yes, they can because the, the, two, the double amputee takes longer to get going. But over 200 meters, they got no chance because yeah. they, well, they know that. not even the issue. So I don't even look at that as an issue, right? I think the class runs against the class. It doesn't matter if, if a person where, because that goes back to the other argument of performance. It does not matter where that occurs of where the double leg amputee below knee will overtake a, a unilateral amputee. To me, that's, that's, that's a non-conversation because that's getting back to a point that says that I'm going to put this, combine this classification based upon the times in which they run, right? And not because of their disability and measure like apples against apples. So it doesn't matter to me that the, that the double leg can catch the, the, the 100 meter amputee and that's where they kind of, uh, at 100 meters is where they, they, um, they kind of parallel themselves. What matters is that a single unilateral below the amputee should be competing as a single lateral below the amputee in a 100 meter dash, 200 meter dash, 400 meter dash, and a double leg amputee, because now the classification is built out, should be competing against double leg amputees below the knee and the 100-meter dash, 200-meter dash, 400-meter dash. And so you, you have a proper measurement. Uh, and now, now a marketing group can see that and say, oh, I get it. I understand what I'm looking at. More so than why is a single leg running against this double leg? I don't get that. But then if we go a step further then, John, what, what would be your opinion on what they've done now in terms of they've not gone into that, but what would be, you could term, a logical step to do that? And I think the athletes that are still competing today would accept if they did that. Uh, I think they've gone, when I was talking to one recently, well, not long ago on my show, in terms of what they've only done, I read about it, is they've just wiped out every world record and gone back to, I think it's the 1970s, where I think that doesn't make sense. That's kind of like a massive, bold step, whereas you could just do this logical step to do that and ever, within reason, yeah. thought, so, okay, so you've, added, you've added extra races. Never, but, you've yeah. added extra races in, but... I, I never try to reinvent a wheel. So if there's, if there's a model out there, I will, tr I will use that model if, it's, if the model works. For example, in this case, reshuffling re deck for, for world records, right? And just kind of eliminating the records. The, the general track and field world does not do that. If there's something that, that changes, so like at my university, we, we went from 300 yards to 300 meters. 
the yards record stands until some, and they just shift it and that stands on the, on the record board of the person that ran the 300 yards in this amount of time. And now the meters time begins at that point. So you still honor your legacy and your history that got you to a specific point. You don't negate the history because it's an evolution. It always changes. In the high jump, we went from the scissor kick or the standing high jump to the scissor kick over the bar to uh, the belly flop over the bar to the now the, the Fosbury flop over the, over the bar. And at the, at the point of when you look at it science-wise and technology, this, if this is the bar, the center of mass started here at the highest point. And as the, the, the heights got higher, the center of mass got lower and lower. So now the center of mass is actually under the bar. Because when the, the, the athlete jumps over the bar, the shoulders are bent in such a way that the, the center of mass is actually lower than the high jump bar. And the athlete goes higher. It's crazy to think about that, right? We would think that the center of mass needs to be higher than the bar. It's actually lower than the bar. So I don't get rid of the records of the scissor kick or the, or the, the person that's jumped over the high jump bar just jumping over it because of the Fosbury flop now, we keep the records and we keep on advancing up. And as Dick Fosbury says, he's always thinking about how do you measure even higher? Because if you clear the bar, you have actually exceeded the height of the bar. So should we measure with technology? Can we now measure from the ground up to where the actual hip height was at the highest point? And can we just take the, the bar or, or take the measurement from there to the ground and actually see what the actual height was versus what the bar said it was? Well, you've got that technology is available, so I don't see why not. Carl Lewis says don't do that. And he says why? I say why, Carl? He says because that takes out the skill that's necessary to get over the bar. So if you, if you take that to the long jump runway, there is a skill to hit that takeoff board at a speed, in his case, about 21 miles per hour from a start point. That's a skill that takes there. For the high jump, there's a curvature to getting to the point of takeoff. So it takes away, it lessens the skill set to get over that height. So maybe you have the bar there, uh, but it takes the skill away from, from, from exceeding it. I think that Because in theory, you could, you could knock the bar off and have the highest height. Well, the argument there would be you leave those, what is still common practice now, in place. You have to get a white flag, obviously a clean jump, or whatever we're going to use terminology-wise, to be able to then get this other form of measurement to be counted. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's, it's interesting, com- <clears throat> interesting conversations. Um, and I think that it, it's always an evolving process. But as we evolve, we shouldn't throw away, you know, the baby with the bath and keep, keep, the, keep what's happened up to a certain point. And if you're going to change everything, you draw the line, definitive line, and then you move forward. So when they combine my class, the T42 uh, and T43 classes uh, for below, um, above knee amputees and above knee amputees, uh, maybe it's 41 class, that's not dwarf class, I can't remember. Um, the, um, uh, the bilaterals and the unilaterals, you don't throw away my American record for that because you combine a class now, that record still stands. 
And I, I think I'm going to have to, to jump because I kept, my battery is down at 10%. So. Okay. <laughs> I, so normally, John, what I wrap up my show is, yep. is this, this, this not sentiment, but comment. Uh, if you had to summarize this episode into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Mm, that's a good question. Um, oh, that's, that's good. Mm. Oh, don't be afraid to steal it because somebody else said they would <laughs> put it on their show. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it has to, I think the show's kind of topic is um, exploring the unknown unknowns. I, lo- I, lo- I kind of lo- like that title. You kind of done it for me. So that's, that's a good one for you. You know, we talked about the unknowns and the disability unknowns, uh, life's unknowns. So exploring the unknown unknowns, yeah. I like that. title it. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it would be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.